Philippians chapter 3, and this morning we'll just be looking at the first three verses of Philippians 3. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you, Father. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And we pray that as we come to this passage this morning, that your spirit would be with us, leading us and guiding us according to your truth. And that as your word goes forth in the power of the spirit, we pray that it would find each or within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that bears great and abundant fruit for your glory. Father, we pray now for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Paul's letter to the Philippians is often referred to as the letter of joy. Joy is a key theme which Paul comes back to again and again in this letter. But as we now reach the halfway point of his letter we see that this joy which Paul has both demonstrated himself and which he now calls the Philippians to imitate is much more than a superficial emotion that comes and goes depending on the circumstances. And it's certainly not a forced smile or appearance of outward happiness that one wears kind of like a mask that covers over inner turmoil and pain. No, the joy which Paul challenges the Philippians, which he challenges even us to have, is firmly rooted in the truth of the gospel and the promises of God's word. And so as Paul challenges in our passage this morning to rejoice in the Lord, well, let us be ready to truly respond accordingly. Paul begins... Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Although it has certainly been implied in other uh, instances, this is the first time in the letter that Paul explicitly rooted joy in the Lord. What exactly does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And why does Paul explicitly state it here? Well, to rejoice in the Lord means first that we're called to rejoice and give thanks for God's gracious gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's because of this great gift of faith and new and everlasting life that we have reason to truly rejoice and be glad. Rejoicing in the Lord reminds us of God's grace poured out upon undeserving sinners and drawing us into a, a right relationship with Him. We rejoice and marvel with with great humility that God was so pleased to send His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, to suffer and die for our sins. Brothers and sisters, 
we can't truly rejoice in the Lord and appreciate where we are now until we're able to look back and see the pit of destruction from where God has delivered us. We grab hold of the magnitude of of God's grace toward us. Only then can we truly begin to rejoice in the Lord. And secondly, to rejoice in the Lord means that we're not only to be thankful, but also to be content with His this great salvation and the provision of God's grace that He daily gives to us. Being content means that we're satisfied and we don't need anything else. And as we trust in God's grace, not only for our initial salvation, but we also trust in His grace as we seek to live out our lives day by day. We trust in His grace to provide for us and sustain us. Now for some, as we'll see, trusting in Jesus alone and what He secured for us, well, it isn't enough. They want something more. Maybe something more uh, seemingly grand or dramatic. Like great signs and wonders. And extraordinary spiritual gifts. Or some want more rigid and structured like laws and, and works and regulations in order to, to know what to do and how to live. Or possibly even someone wants something less demanding on their personal lives. Like not having to pursue holiness and just doing what's right in their own eyes. Or they want something that has a greater payout of health, wealth, and material possessions. All these lack contentment in the simple saving grace of the Gospel that is offered through Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in the Lord means that our hope and trust is in Christ alone for salvation. Nothing added and nothing taken away. Thirdly, to rejoice in the Lord means that we acknowledge that God is sovereignly in control of all things. And this knowledge is what really enables us to to be content and and to be satisfied and it keeps us uh, grounded. It keeps us from searching for something more. You see, if we acknowledge that God's plan is the only true and perfect plan, and that He alone has the power and the authority to bring that plan about, well then there's simply nothing that should call into question our assurance that He will truly work out everything for what's our good and for His glory. And so we can rejoice in the Lord because our God is the one true living God who's sovereign over all things. And so to rejoice in the Lord, to to be thankful for our salvation, to be content with God's grace, and to be assured of His sovereignty, well, that's all pretty straightforward. And so why then, why does Paul repeat himself as he acknowledges here that this isn't the first time that he has called them to rejoice? Undoubtedly, uh, even when he was with them in their midst, he urged them to rejoice in the Lord. But even in this letter, we know that he has repeatedly given them an example of rejoicing in the Lord at all times, even in the midst of trouble. And back in chapter 1, verse 4, and verse 18, and verse 25... 
And again, in, in chapter 2, uh, then uh, in verse 2, and then verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. And then again, he urges them to receive Timothy and Epaphroditus with all joy in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And even after chapter 3, verse 1, Paul will still call them to rejoice in the Lord. You really can't read Philippians without coming away knowing that we must rejoice in the Lord at all times. And so why the repetition? Well, one reason is that we so easily forget. And we get busy. And we get caught up in the daily grind of, our, of living out our lives. We get distracted by this event or, or that activity that we actually forget to rejoice in the Lord. Just like we can easily forget to spend daily time in prayer and the reading of God's Word to receive that daily nourishment that we need in order to flourish in our faith. We can forget to rejoice and give thanks for this salvation that God has so graciously given to us. We can take it for granted and not give it much thought to it at all. Except maybe when we come to church on the Lord's Day. God knows our weaknesses. The Apostle knows the human weakness. And so he repeatedly reminds us to rejoice in the Lord. A second reason for the repetition is that it's easier to rejoice in the Lord when life is full of roses and everything is going well for us. But we must remember that it's especially during times of trials and suffering that we still need to rejoice in the Lord. Paul says here, to write the same things to you is not tedious. You see, Paul doesn't mind writing to them over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. You see, because as he's doing that, it's actually helping to remind him to also rejoice in the Lord. And lest anyone, even we ourselves, say that well, Paul doesn't know my situation, and he doesn't know the trials and hardships that I'm currently enduring in life. He doesn't know these things. Of course, it's no problem for, for him to remind us to rejoice Friends, remember, where is Paul at this time? The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's in prison and he's awaiting word about his faith, whether he's going to be set free or perhaps even condemned to die. When was the last time you were in such a position? Paul's in prison, and yet he's rejoicing in the Lord. And he has no problem writing to the Philippians and to us to tell us repeatedly to rejoice in the Lord. Now, of course, no one said it was going to be easy. Whether you're enduring physical pain or maybe struggles in in relationships or being ridiculed for your faith, well, these are precisely the times that we must rejoice in the Lord with all certainty and assurance. And we don't know what you're what direction to go and you're trying to make decisions and you're hard pressed on every side. We rejoice in the Lord. There's a saying I read one time, until God opens the next door, 
we praise Him in the hallway. We always are looking for God to give us direction and lead us, and only then will we think about praising Him. But what about praising Him just through the ordinary trials and travails and plodding along through life? We should rejoice and give thanks to the Lord at all times. We should be ready to praise Him and rejoice, especially during times of difficulty. Well, this leads us to the third reason that Paul repeats this challenge as he mentions here, but for you it is safe. That is, rejoicing in the Lord keeps us us safe. Well, how so? Well, it reminds us of the truth of God's promises. That He will never leave us nor forsake us. That He truly will work out all things for our good and His glory. That His plan will overrule and come about. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for us because when we're reminded of these things, well, it then strengthens our faith. And a strong faith, a strong vital faith, is able to combat doubts and despair and discouragements as well as help us to overcome temptations and, and it also helps us to endure trials. Rejoicing in the Lord at all times helps to protect us against Satan's assaults. And it helps to keep the focus of our eyes, our minds, and our hearts on the One who has so graciously delivered us from destruction. Rejoicing in the Lord is truly our safeguard. And we need to be guarded as Paul now warns the Philippians verse 2. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now this is a pretty dramatic transition. Going from rejoicing in the Lord to being being aware of dogs. In fact, this tone from verse 1 to verse 2, it shifts so significantly that that it has caused many to question whether uh, verses 2 and following is part of the original letter. uh, They speculate that it was just a fragment that was found and someone just kind of stuck it in there. But there's no reason to raise these doubtful questions. Yes, the shift is dramatic. But Paul has just mentioned that rejoicing in the Lord is for safety is for our safety. And so certainly it logically would follow that he would now explain what it is that rejoicing would keep us safe from. And we see here that rejoicing in the Lord helps us to be kept safe from the influence of false teachers and false doctrines, which Paul graphically describes as dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. And the repeated use of the word beware is to emphasize that these dangers are these are, are most serious dangers. And we ought not to take them lightly. And so who are these of whom Paul is speaking? Although we've noted previously that the Philippian believers were uh, often facing opposition from both Gentiles and Jews, it seems that here Paul is warning of a group often referred to as Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews who had professed faith in Christ, but they still held to the laws of Moses and the traditions of the elders as a way to seek God's approval. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they then sought to impose these legalistic requirements upon Gentile believers. In other words, they asserted that in order for a person to truly become a Christian, 
you first had to become a law-abiding Jew. This was a great error that plagued the early church. In fact, it was the teaching of the Judaizers that led to the first representative church assembly or the presbytery meeting in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And even though that council handed down their decision that the ceremonial laws, in particular uh, circumcision, was not binding upon Gentile believers, well, the Judaizers continued to press their assaults and their false doctrine whenever a new congregation would pop up in a city or region. So they would not let it go. Uh, they would not go away quickly or easily. And the reason that the teaching of the Judaizers was so problematic was because it was adding the works of the law to salvation by God's grace alone. And so the Judaizers would not re- rejoice in the Lord's free salvation. They wanted to rejoice in ceremonial laws and regulations and outward appearances. Rather than in hearts transformed by God's grace alone. Sadly, many do the very same thing today as we noted. They aren't content with God's free grace alone, but they want to, to mix God's grace with their own works and their own righteousness. But God and the Apostle Paul say, no. Rejoice in the Lord alone. Our works, our good deeds, our religious ritual and ceremony, they bring us no merit or favor with God. In fact, God says in Isaiah 64 that our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Apostle Paul knows firsthand the destructive effects of this kind of teaching, which is why he uses such strong words to warn against it. And yet the words he uses are quite fitting. He calls them dogs. Now these are not cute little puppies or pets. But they're large, ugly, and savage wild dogs that would roam the streets at night seeking to attack any helpless person that they might find. And the irony here is that the Jews often referred to the Gentiles as dogs because they were unclean and savage. Well, here Paul turns the table on them and calls them dogs because they're the ones who savagely distort the gracious salvation of God. They try to pollute it with their own works and righteousness. Next he refers to them as evil workers. Not workers of the law or workers of righteousness as they presume themselves to be, but self-righteous evil workers. This was in contrast to Timothy, Epaphroditus, and even the Philippian believers themselves who were fellow workers and partners of God's grace. The evil workers... We're not working for the gospel. They were working against it. They were not seeking to free souls from sin. But they were looking to chain them to the law. Which leads to death. And then finally Paul gets to the heart of the matter. And calls them the mutilation. Now remember that circumcision was the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham. To set apart Israel as the people of God in the Old Testament. And it was a bloody and painful sign that was to remind uh, the people of this sin nature that was passed on from one generation to the next. The sin nature was deserving of death. That it was 
That is, it was deserving of the shedding of blood. But the outpouring of God's grace through Jesus Christ, circumcision was now no longer necessary. It became an obsolete covenant sign with no meaning or value. And because it was Jesus, God's own Son, whose perfect blood was shed and who endured the painful suffering and death on the cross to atone for sins. So circumcision is nothing. And as Paul says here, it's nothing more than mutilation. Not only of the flesh, but more importantly, a mutilation of the gospel. As Paul declares in Galatians 5, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If God profits you nothing and gives no benefit to you, then you're without hope and without God in this life. And there will be no rejoicing, not now, and certainly not in eternity for such ones who so distort the truth of the gospel. And so Paul's warning is very, very severe. Those who would distort the gospel by adding uh, works of the law or uh, works of righteousness or ritual, And so to guard against false teaching and the influence that Paul now calls the Philippians and us to rejoice in the Lord, to give thanks for God's salvation, to be content with God's grace and to acknowledge God's sovereignty in every situation. Rejoicing the Lord in this way is then the source of our confidence as Paul now goes on to describe in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Well, certainly, as we just noted, it can't be the circumcision of the flesh. Because Paul just said that that secures nothing. Now, Paul is here speaking of the true circumcision of the heart. See, that which is done not by human hands, but by the gracious work of the Spirit of Christ in us. And Paul Paul boldly declares in Romans 2, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter. Certainly this would have been a great affront to the Jews even to the Jewish believers who had prided themselves on their heritage. But Paul isn't saying anything different that wasn't also revealed in the Old Testament. For it was revealed to the people through Moses that God's chief concern was always the circumcision of the heart. That is, the removal of sin was most critical to His covenant blessing. And so in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 we read this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And this was even later repeated by uh, the prophets in Jeremiah 4 verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Again, this was spoken to those who were already circumcised in the flesh. And so the Judaizers now, they had no excuse to peddle their false doctrine as they sought to lead others astray. 
Though they were circumcised in the flesh, they were showing that they were not circumcised in the heart. They were believers in a false gospel. And so Paul reassures the Philippians here that they are, by grace through faith, they are the true circumcision. That is the true people of God. Because it's their hearts that which have been transformed by God's grace and not by their bodies by the hands of men. The promises and blessings of God's covenant belong to ones such as these. Jews and Gentiles whose hearts were truly right with God by faith. And this is what Paul will say in, in Galatians 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so the Philippian believers can rejoice in the Lord because they are God's true covenant people. Well, how do they know they are the true covenant people of God? Well, Paul notes three identifiers. First, they worship God in the Spirit. The reality of their faith is evident in their worship as they rejoice in the Lord when they publicly gather together. As Jesus said in John 4, uh, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So they're not led in worship by empty rituals or ceremony not by emotions that are easily manipulated, nor by any uh, need to be entertained, nor by any schemes of their own devising. They are led by the Spirit of God, according to the truth revealed in God's Word. This is how they know they are the people of God. The second identifier is that they rejoice in Christ Jesus. They can be confident that they have a reason to rejoice in the Lord because the chief desire of their hearts is to glorify God through Jesus Christ. Their worship and their lives are submitted to this overarching purpose. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this they do. But this glory in Christ Jesus also means that they don't boast in themselves. They don't boast in their good deeds or what they have done. But their only boast is in Christ and in what He has done for them. They rejoice in the Lord because they glory in Jesus Christ alone. And thirdly, they have no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul isn't here just talking about the ceremonial ritual of circumcision, but anything, anything that might be tempted to base their hope for salvation in other than the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone is considered the flesh. So no rituals, no symbols, no ceremonial or dietary laws. It's not their lineage or their heritage. It's not their achievements or good deeds. It's not even their moral character or or their religious exercises. And certainly not themselves or the works and deeds of any other man or woman, either apart from or in addition to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh because we know that the flesh will pass away. But our confidence and our hope is in the grace of God through Jesus Christ because we know that that will last for an eternity. And so it's in Christ alone that we find our confidence and hope of salvation. 
And those who put no confidence in the flesh, but in Jesus Christ alone, are those who truly rejoice in the Lord. Of course, these are the same things which would also identify us as the people of God today. We're God's covenant people today, even His own beloved children. Not because of birth, not because of heritage or our own works or even religious rituals. We're His beloved children by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we show this in our worshiping God in spirit and truth. By seeking to exalt Christ in our worship and our lives above all else and by trusting not in the flesh for salvation, but in God's wonderful display of grace toward us through the Lord Jesus. Beloved of God, consider these great truths this morning. Consider their precepts and truly heed the warnings. Examine your own hearts to consider in what or in whom do you truly place your trust. May it truly be in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Nothing added and nothing taken away. But the pure grace of God freely offered to you through the gospel. Receive this blessing by faith. Even now. And you will truly rejoice in the Lord, both now and forever, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks. We're content in your grace. We rest in it. We trust in your sovereignty and your good and perfect plan for us. We acknowledge what You have done for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Doing what we could not do because of our sinfulness and our rebellion against You. And so we praise You and thank thank You, Lord, that we truly rejoice in You. And that this joy can be with us no matter what's going on in our lives around us. That we can remain steadfast in joy. This uns- unshakable hope that we have in Christ. Because our salvation is not of ourselves. It's not of our works. It's not of our religious exercises that we do. It is not of baptism with the Lord's Supper. But our true hope And our only salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that He gives. And that we are enabled to be bold and rejoicing at all times. And as we do so, we are mindful that that we can be great witnesses for Your glory. Those around us see us going through times of difficulty and they see us rejoicing and being content. They would give us, they would ask us a reason for the hope that is in us. That we might be equipped to share with them this glorious gospel of grace. Father, we just pray that you would truly apply these truths to our hearts. 
and that you would build us up and encourage us, drawing us all closer to yourself, that we might truly glorify you by rejoicing and giving thanks for all that you have done for us at all times to the praise of your glorious name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.